This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25, but I'd like to begin uh, leading us into a time of prayer as the uh, cattle call is going up. <clears throat> so if you bow your heads with me, uh, we'll begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. I'm just uh, floored, awed, and amazed uh, every time that we get to sing about who you are in relation to us and recognize your goodness to us. And we only know just the edge of that, just the tip of that, just the slight recognition. But in each and every way, all the dark areas of our lives, you continue to reinforce to display your goodness to us. You are good on our good days. You are good on our bad days. You're good on the days where we don't know which end is up. And so I thank you for that, for your grace, your mercy. You lavish upon us in the person of Jesus. Father, we come to you and just ask that you would uh, be at work mightily in the many churches of our community. We're so thankful that one of your attributes is being omnipresent. You're able to be in more than one place at one time. And God, so we ask that your spirit would fall heavy upon the churches of our community, that we would see revival break out as men and women return their hearts to you. They surrender the throne of their heart to you. They begin to live for you and and you live in them and that we would see strong churches well up in Greenville, that we would see strong churches attack homelessness, that we would see strong churches attract immorality, that we would see strong churches come along and, and be an encouragement to those who are are beaten down and heavy laden. God, that we would see the church begin to minister to those in our community, minister to those who are antagonistic towards us and our beliefs, because ultimately we recognize that we are servants of the King. As they treated Jesus, so too that we should expect that they would treat us. And so, God, we pray for the churches, we pray for their people to be faithful. I pray for their pastors to be powerful in, the, in your word, that they wouldn't seek to exercise some tour to force of their own personality, but that they would be standing on your word, resting in his goodness and his grace, that they would be raising dead men and women up to life again. So God, we pray for them for their services this morning. Father, we too pray for our gathering. Thank you for the worship that you've already allowed us to enjoy, the worship you've allowed us to extend to you as an offering of praise. God, we pray that you would Alert our minds, awaken us, help the caffeine to carry over. God, allow your Holy Spirit to come in our hearts to enliven us, to embolden us, to excite us for the careful study and application of your word, that your spirit would be moving in our hearts and leading us always towards application, that we would not be merely those who hear and walk away and live lives unchanged, but we would be those who hear, who internalize, who submit, and are forever changed. And we need the work of your spirit to accomplish those things in our heart and in our lives. And so to that end, we pray. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Over the next three weeks, we're going to be doing, every other year, what we do is we drill down and we begin to look at what our identity as a local congregation looks like. And so you'll notice that if you've looked at our bulletin, you've looked at most of the information we sent out, it says... Uh, grow, serve, and go. And so it's drilling down these ideas. And if you've come in uh, since we started instilling that, and since we started having that, if you've come in for a membership interview, and you've come in and said, I think I'd like to join your church, I think I'd like to be a part of this body, you will have heard me or one of the other elders talk about that, what that means. And you'll hear us say that we want people who are growing in their faith and helping others to grow. 
And notice, even in that articulation of the first point, it's not just me, right? It's not just you. It's, it's looking out and having impact on all those around us. We want people that are growing in their faith and helping others to grow. And that's where we're going to spend the lion's share of our time talking about today what it is to be personally growing and investing ourselves in the lives of those around us so that they too are growing. You see, when most of us think about growth, the most natural thing we think of is what? Is physical growth. And so we have three kids, seven, four, and one. And so the seven-year-old, he asks us quite frequently. Uh, in fact, it's, it's, anyway, he asks us all the time. And so uh, I'm growing. I say, yes, you're growing. Will I be as tall as you? Someday, maybe. Why can't I tell that I'm growing? Because you're growing very, very slowly. He said, because I just went to the measuring stick in my room and I see no discernible growth. My words, not his. He said, I see no, he said, I, I don't see myself getting any taller. But now I am. I said, well, that doesn't count. And so we recognize that over the course of our lives, we, most of us never recognize that we were physically growing. We recognize when our pants got shorter, right? We were all set with capris, but long pants we didn't have very many of. And so we didn't recognize, we didn't see ourselves growing. It became this almost imperceptible thing that happens naturally. So we come into spiritual growth. We come into the church, we attend services, we're saved, we're baptized, whatever. We grow up in the church, and we expect, we anticipate that the same thing that we saw in physical growth would be true for spiritual growth. And we're disappointed. We're disenfranchised. But I've been in the church my whole life. Why don't I feel this way? Or I've been in church my whole life. Why don't I know this? I've been in church my whole life. Why is this so difficult? And it's because when we come into spiritual growth, we recognize it's radically distinct and different than physical growth. It doesn't just happen. It's not just automatic. And we also recognize in spiritual growth, as opposed to physical growth, it is corporate in manifestation. Physical growth is you on you, right? You eat the right things, you have the right diet, you have the right genes, and you're going to grow. You're going to grow. It's just going to happen. Spiritual growth, you're not siloed. The difficulty is, in our Western conception of how things work, we have this understanding that spiritual growth is just me. It's all about me. It's all about my life. And we tend to exclude others. We don't think about their role in our lives. We don't think about our role in their lives. And we miss it. If you read through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you read through the majority of the letters in the New Testament, you recognize that over and again, he uses the word you plural. This is one of the great reasons that Paul should have been a southerner. He could have saved us a lot of time, a lot of confusion if he had said, y'all, right? We want to talk to one person, we say you. We want to talk to everybody, we say y'all. If you're up north, it sounds really weird. You have to say use guys. And then everybody says, what does that mean? <laughs> use guys. Come on now. So y'all. And so this corporate example over and again, we see it in Philippians, we see it in Ephesians, we see it in Colossians, we see it in all of these letters over and again. It is us. It's me, it's you, it's us together. And so what we're going to look at is the idea contained within of what it means for us to grow together. But what I want to do is for us to look at it in the overlay of this wonderful peril, parable uh, spoken by Jesus in Matthew chapter 25. He's talking about these talents that he gives out. Now, a talent is roughly equivalent to 6,000 days work by a day laborer. So just think about that. One talent 
is roughly 20 years wages for a day laborer. Okay? So just go into it with that mindset. Now look what he says here, starting at verse 14. Speaking of the kingdom of heaven, he says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five talents, to the one he gave two, and another one. And look at this, very important. He says, to each according, everybody say, to his ability. The things God has entrusted to you, the spiritual growth that he has given you, the ministries you are over, should be in accordance with your ability. Now, the difficulty is we look around this room, we look around most rooms that we're in, and we say, this person's over this, this person has this responsibility, I see them advancing in this area, and we want it. We want it. We see successful people, and this is how we assign success. We see them moving, and so he's the chair of the deacons. He's teaching a Sunday school class. He's leading a life group. And, 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 or we see her over women's ministry. We see her teaching this area. We see her surrounded by all these young women around her, and we want that. We want to emulate that. We want that in our lives. In some sense, what we want is people to say, well, look at Jeff. He's amazing. Well, look at Bob. She's fantastic. Well, look at Sue and Sally. They are just really pursuing. I wish that could be said of me but this is what our God knows about you he knows your ability he knows your place and he tends to assign responsibility in line with ability this isn't a ceiling for you this is where you are right now and this is for your good so he comes in and he has these two to one he gives five to one he gives two and to one he gives one and let's look at how they respond. It says, then he went away, verse 16. He who had received the five talents went, everybody say, at once. He went at once and he traded with them and he made five talents more. So also the one who had two talents made two talents more. And so these guys get to work. Imagine that he goes in and he gives this guy who's got five talents. And so this is roughly a hundred years worth of money. He's got a hundred years worth of, of, of day labor wages there. So he's got all this money and he goes out and, and can you imagine having this ter ter tremendous, terrific sum of money? You look at it and you say, wow, this is a lot. Maybe he won't notice them off the top and you begin to, no. And so he takes it and once he goes out, he begins to trade and he's wise and he's diligent and he's working hard. Like there's no picture here that says this guy is slovenly who goes out and he says, oh wait, he's going to be gone a long time. Maybe I'll just start work tomorrow. The text tells us that at once, he was given terrific responsibility, and at once, he went out, set about working, and he doubled the thing that he was entrusted with. And so, so also the one who was given two did the same thing. And so this guy goes out, and he made two talents more. And so this guy, also given a terrific sum of money, 40 years worth of income, and he goes out and he doubles it because he's just... He's, he's giving himself over to the master and to the will and to the desire that the master had for him, which is hard work, which is diligence. And so he goes out and he applies himself and he, he strives and he sweats and he bleeds and he toils and he doubles what the master had given him. And we turn to the third person. We recognize it's decidedly different. Verse 18 says, But he who had received the one talent went, and he dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now we read this and we say, what? What a slob. What a pig. What's wrong with you? 
But I would tell you that at this point of the text, at this point of the parable, we don't know anything negative about him. This was a completely acceptable and well-practiced technique for preserving wealth in the first century. And so it was a completely proven technique. And so what you would do is you would go, and so I'm going to go over to this piano, and I, I, I dig a hole right underneath there, and then I cover it up, and I cover the dirt over. Maybe I put a plant on top of it or a plaque to my mother-in-law. Nobody's moving that. And so I go out, and, and, and everybody looks at it, and they say, what a wonderful plaque that you set up. What's underneath there? And I say, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> nothing's underneath. <laughs> nothing's under. Why do you do that giggle thing? I don't know. Nothing's underneath there. Don't look underneath there. And so what this guy did is nothing to poke at and to say he is terrible in that he sought to preserve wealth. At this level, we don't know anything bad about this guy. One doubled it, second doubled it, and this guy preserved the wealth entrusted to him by his master. It's important for us, thinking thematically on the idea of spiritual growth, to understand that of what it looks like. And in terms of what it looks like for us, there are two things. One, it looks like dependence on God. And the second would be, it looks like dependence on one another. This idea of dependence on God is really well articulated in Philippians chapter 2. Flip over there. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes and he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. So what does he demonstrate? They have been faithful. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he gives them something to do. They're supposed to work out their fear and trembling. They're supposed to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. They're supposed to work out, recognize where they are before God, and they're supposed to do this with great care. So he gives them something to do. But look at this, what he goes on to say. For it is God who works in you. So recognize that in the midst of working out their fear and trembling, working out their salvation with fear and trembling, they can't do it on their own. God has not given you a task that you can accomplish on your own. This is good news. This is good news. To work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to engage in these things only in your own efforts, only in your own knowledge, only all by yourself would be overwhelming and you couldn't do it. It says, for it is God who works in you. Look at this. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Can I tell you this morning that God's desire for you is spiritual growth, and he is willing, he's giving you the desire, and he's working to give you the strength, the energy to do this. And so in terms of our spiritual growth, growing to full sanctification, growing to full holiness in Christ Jesus, you need God to work in your heart to make this possible. So you wake up, you read your Bible, you do your quiet times and all these things, and you feel dry. Your first starting point in spiritual pursuit is, God, would you continue to work in me? You step down off your throne. You make sure Jesus sits on the throne of your heart. You continue to pray, God, would you will, would you work in me? God, would you will, would you work in me? He is giving you the will, the desire, and he's giving you the energy to accomplish the task. We need to be dependent upon God in our pursuit of spiritual growth. Now, this one's different. We need to be dependent upon each other. 
Can I tell you that every academic pursuit I've ever had, my least favorite thing has always been a group assignment. When the professor stepped out, teacher stepped out and said, hey, look, we've got a group assignment, my, my response was always like, can I take a C? Like, it stands for credit. I don't like to work with other people. This is not my, this is not my, my givenness. If I could pick things, this isn't the way I would do it. And it seems that God, in his cosmic sense of humor, said, check this out. I'm going to give them a huge group assignment. You know the problem? Every group assignment, you've got the guy that does what? He doesn't do the work. He's always got an excuse. Then you've got the guy that has no life, and all he wants to make it is about that project because he needs friends. He has no friends outside of it. Church is a colossal group assignment. We recognize all those people show up back in church. Hebrews chapter 10 gives us this beautiful picture of what it can look like. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 19, there's this amazing picture. He's talking about our full assurance of faith. Listen along with me. Therefore, brothers, so he's talking to a group, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, Jesus' blood allows you to draw close to God. Then it's by this new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, he's building his case. Since Jesus reigns over the house of God for us, look what he says. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. He says, let us, all of us together. And so conjured in our minds is this picture of all of us engaging and running towards the cross of Jesus together. All of us together. And so we look back and we see somebody straggling behind and we encourage them to come on. And we look ahead and we see those blazing the trail and we say, wait up for me. It's all of us together. And so it's not looking around and saying, who are the weak links? Let's cut them short. Let's move them to another church. It is all of us together. He is writing to a local congregation. And so we see this not played out in the universal church. We only ever see this adequately played out in the local church. Let us together. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We hear this and our heart grows. We hear this and our response towards God is to know that we are cleansed, we are made holy before God, and in the midst of being cleansed and made holy before God, he is calling us into this passionate pursuit. And look at this, in the midst of this crazy race, he turns and he says, let us, all these people who are pursuing, all these people who are made clean, all these people who are made right before God, he says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. In your pursuit of passionately pursuing Jesus, in the midst of passionately pursuing Jesus, he calls you and he says, consider then how you might stir one another up to love and good works. This word, consider. It's vitally important that we recognize. He doesn't just look at it and say, you and, you and Zach need to go, you need to grab coffee, you need to spend time together once every four or five months. Man, I can't know Zach if we, he and I get together once every four and five months. I can't know his relationship with his wife, with his kids, with his business, with his church, and what it means for me to stir him up to loving good works. That's not considering him. That's me just walking down the hall and be like, hey, Zach, give me a high five. That's the closest we're ever going to get if we only get together that, with that frequency. 
It is investing yourself in the lives of those people around you and allowing them to invest their lives in you. It requires you to be vulnerable. If all we ever do is project an impenetrable barrier of perfection, nobody's going to want to get close to you. Nobody wants to know you because they know themselves and they look at their own heart and they know that they are wicked and they know that they are vile and they know that they are a failure and they know they don't want to read the word and they know they don't want to wake up early in the morning and they know they don't want to attend church and they know that it is a beat down to keep your kids in here on family Sunday and they know all of these things about themselves and they look over and they see you and all they see is perfection. They don't want to have a relationship. If we get honest, we foster a community where it is okay to be broken because we recognize that Jesus trades in broken people. He redeems the broken. He redeems the wayward. And he is working in my heart to will and to work for his good pleasure. Amen? We've got to be okay not being perfect. He says, consider how you might stir one another up to love and good works. What this is, is me looking at Jesse and Anna and James and Susan and me looking at Joel and Denise and me looking at the Gilberts and saying, how can I invest myself in them to magnify Jesus in their hearts so they grow closer to him? Like I'm so busy pouring out myself into their lives and they're turning and they're doing the same thing into other couples and other singles. And what we see is that all of us begin to passionately pursue Jesus together. Consider how you might stir one another up to love and good works. Recognize that, friends, there are certain things that keep us from doing this. There are some ways that we stunt our growth. One of the ways, and really looking here in this passage in Hebrews, this is where I make lots of enemies. I'm glad Christmas is over. Look what he says here. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. One of the ways we stunt our spiritual growth is simply by not coming to church. I don't know how to say that in a way that would really excite you and make you want to come to church because my, my general read on most of y'all is if I get ugly and talk down to you, you're probably not going to come back next Sunday, right? Most of us <clears throat> don't enjoy being spoken down to. Most of us don't enjoy being blasted. We recognize in some sense, man, that's what our heart needs. Culturally, it used to be the norm that three out of four Sundays was kind of normal church attendance, and it slipped down to kind of 50 time, and then it slipped into like one in four time. Some of you have jobs. You can't attend church on Sundays. I understand that. Your kids get sick. You get sick. You have a big trip come up. Nobody's tracking your attendance and then sending you a bill in the mail when you don't show up. We tried that. It didn't work. <laughs> For those of you who aren't used to humor, we never tried that. <clears throat> Seriously, though, but if you think it would work, we would. Do you think it would work, James? No? Okay, I didn't think so. Man, we've got to be found faithful in attendance. Culturally, it's completely acceptable to be a part of any group to increase your contribution and decrease your attendance, and most people are willing to accept that. What we read scripturally, we go through this. There aren't a whole lot of ways to parse this. You need to be found in church. You need to be found faithful. In church, it's your home with you and your spouse is not gathering with a congregation of people. You need to be dependent on those people around you and they need to be able to depend on you. And quite simply, we can't do that if you're never here. One of the ways we stunt our spiritual growth is by not being frequent 
in church attendance. Another way that we stunt our spiritual growth is by this idea of kind of Christian nostalgia. When I came to Greenville, I had never once heard of Falls Creek. This is, this is shocking for some of you. Was he even a Christian before he came? Like, I'd never heard of Falls Creek, and, and, and so I was from somewhere else, and we had a camp down there that you'd never heard of. Are you even a Christian? But this idea of Christian nostalgia, like you've been to a camp, you had a pastor, and you were so close to Jesus, and your heart just exploded with closeness to Jesus. And when you think about your spiritual growth, if somebody were to walk up and say, Jim, Bob, Sue, how are you doing spiritually? That's where your mind goes. This is where you're fixated. This is where you remember. This is what you think is good and great and wonderful. Christian nostalgia. Relying on past gains instead of current effort. One of the things that will surely stunt your growth is by reaching these spiritual highs and then just thinking that you can coast from there. Friends, you don't coast from there. You hit that spiritual high and you come right back down to the valley with the rest of us, slumming it. You need to focus. You need to work on your spiritual growth. These spiritual highs are wonderful. They remind us of what it can be like to be especially close to God. And they're calling us to expend energy and effort to get back there. Not to live in the memory of what it once was. Imagine then that that when Valerie and I got married, our wedding was the most beautiful, amazing thing ever. And on that day I said, I love you, I'm going to love you until I die. And I treated her like a princess. You don't have to imagine that. That really happened. But, but so I, I did that, and I'm, I'm investing in those things. And then for the rest of our married life, I treat her like dirt. And whenever she complains, whenever she brings it up, I say, do you remember that day? Do you remember how great it was? And then we had a honeymoon after that. You got six days. What are you complaining about? And so every time I think about our relationship, I remember how great it was. Every time she thinks of our relationship, she knows how terrible it is. Many of us, when we think of our relationship with God, we're so focused on the highs that we don't recognize the current plane that we live on. God wants you to have continued closeness and intimacy with him. And that is not gained, experienced, through Christian nostalgia, but through current effort. We need to make sure we're expending ourselves, seeking to grow close to God. Saying that is dangerous. Saying that you need to work hard, you need to expend energy is dangerous, and this is why. Because our approach to Jesus then has a tendency to become one of mechanics instead of one of relationship. In Matthew 19, in Matthew 19, there's this picture of a guy who comes up to Jesus, calling the rich young ruler. So he comes up to Jesus, and he begins to ask him what he has to do to have eternal life, Matthew 19, verse 16. Jesus says, why are you asking about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. That's something he can do. Something he can do. So Jesus is queried again. The guy asks and says, which ones? Jesus said, you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't commit adultery, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't bear false witness. Honor your mother and your father, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Dude is pumped. He's excited. He hears this. It's all mechanical. It's all stuff he's done. So he answers, and he said, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? In essence, he's not asking, actually, what do I lack? Because he's expecting Jesus to say, well, a good and faithful servant. Come on in. But he asks anyway. He says, what do I lack? Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. 
And we know how the story ends. The guy went away sad because he was quite wealthy. What the mechanical reveals, this mechanical pursuit of God. I got my quiet time. I do that for 30 minutes every morning. I journal like a lunatic. I, I put the date on there so I know when I miss things. I'm memorizing scripture like a, like a man possessed. I'm, I know that I've been in church 50 the last 52 weeks because I can show you on my calendar how these things are true. I have fasted so long I can feel my backbone through my belly button. I mean, this mechanical pursuit of God, what it reveals are areas of our hearts we're not yet ready to relinquish. This mechanical pursuit of God, as he goes through and, and says, I've got that, I've got that, I've got that, Jesus looks at his heart and says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. The mechanical pursuit of God is only ever going to get you to the point of showing you what you're not yet ready to relinquish. A relationship with God finds you in the midst of communing with Him, praying with Him, sharing your heart with Him, and He is wooing you, and He is winning you, and you are spending such close and beautiful time with Him that you find yourself giving stuff away that never had a chance to lay its hooks into your heart. Why? Because your heart was always fixed on Him. Can I tell you, the mechanical is always going to disappoint. It's going to stunt your spiritual growth. The relational approach to Jesus is what we need. In the midst of this relational pursuit, one last thing that stunts our growth this is focus on who we were, not who we are. I meet with people most weeks that come into my office, and the litany of things they share is, <clears throat> these are my failures, these are all the ways I've completely jacked up my life. Everybody knows this about me. I'm a complete and utter failure. So talk about their spiritual state, where they are before Jesus. Our tendency is to focus on who we were, not who we are what Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And we hear this and think, I'm out. I could never get in. God doesn't love me. He doesn't care for me. I find myself repeatedly placing myself back on this list. We're prideful, we're arrogant, we're greedy, we're lazy. Just completely apathetic. Man, I don't even know what I am because I don't care anymore. He says, if such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You're not that person anymore. Every time you are tempted to live in the reality of who you were as a current indication of who you are, remind yourself that is not who you are. You've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. God is at work in your heart and in your life. He has put to death who you once were, and he has made you into a person who is wonderful and glorious, adored and loved by the king. And he sees you in the midst of your stumbling, the midst of your waywardly pursuing Jesus, and he is passionately pursuing your heart. You're not who you once were. You're who he has made you to be, and you are becoming glorious in him. We 
we've shown our growth a variety of ways. We recognize that there is there has got to be a reason why we grow, though. So let's return to this parable here in Matthew. Thus far, we've seen tremendous diligence. We've seen them at work doubling what was entrusted to them, and we've seen the one bury. And when we come back into this passage, we find that the master is returning. He's returning. Verse 19 says, Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So this guy comes back, and he goes before them, and he begins to talk to them about how they did while he was gone. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more. So he brings fully 200 years worth of day labor's wages with him. Saying, Master, you delivered to me five. Here I've made you five more. Now, the response of the master is identical to the guy he gave the five and to the guy he gave the two. And this gives us an indication that one is not more valuable than the other, other, but what he's calling us to do is to emulate, to follow in the pattern of their diligence. The master responds, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over, over a little. I will set you over much. Now, I want you to think about, I'm thinking about the gracious nature of God. That God could look at what amounts to a hundred years worth of day laborers' wages and look at that and say, that is little. And that's small potatoes. You've been faithful with a small amount, more money than that guy would see his entire lifetime, two entire lifetimes. And God looks at it and says, you have been faithful with a little. I'm going to set you over much. Some of you, the ministries you're working in, you don't consider them to be much. Can I tell you, I know faithful people in this body who their, their ministries, they write letters of encouragement to people that need them. They have personal woes and difficulties in their lives. They have suffered the loss of children. They have suffered the loss of spouses. They have suffered the loss of jobs. And, and, and what they do is they reach out to people they see experiencing that same need. And our tendency is to look at that and say, that is trivial, that is small. And God is increasing that person's ministry. But why? Because they have dutifully put themselves in submission to the master and their hand to the plow and have been faithful in what he's called them to do. Be faithful with a little, I'll put you in charge of much. Look what he says after this. The object of our spiritual growth isn't to be recognized by those around us. It isn't to get tapped on the shoulder to serve. It isn't even to go and to be a missionary. It's not to be a pastor. That's like the opposite of that. The object of our spiritual growth is right here. He says, enter into the joy of your master. He says the same thing to the one who had five and the one who had two. Jesus has entrusted you with certain talents, certain abilities, certain relationships. He's inserted you into an occupation, and he is asking you to be faithful. The reward of that faithfulness is enjoying more of Jesus. The reward of that faithfulness is enjoying more of Jesus. This isn't a story. This isn't a parable about how to grow your ministries. This is a parable for what it is to value the things that Jesus values. He asks you, and he rewards you, with enjoying his presence. And so he calls both of those who are faithful to enter into the joy of his master. Look what happens here. This is where most of us find ourselves 
or feel like we are anyway. Verse 24, he said, So also the one who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hit your talent in the ground, and, 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 and here you have, here you have what is yours. He gives it back to him. He made a decision based on his conception of how the master is. And many of us, our response to God is informed with misinformation of who God is, just like this guy. He says, here it is. I knew you to be a hard man. I knew you to be effectively unfair, is what he's seeking to com communicate. Master turns to him. And he asks with this type of biting sarcasm. He says, you knew that I uh, reap where I haven't sown and I gather where I scatter no seed? And it, it, if that is the case, then this is what you should have done. You should have taken my money, put it in the bank, so at least I get back what I had and some interest. In essence, what the master's saying is, you didn't believe this about me at all. What this reveals about you is that you are wicked and you are slothful. Hearts full of laziness, your hearts full of evil. Many of us are temptation when we don't pursue Jesus. And so look at this and we wonder if this is who we are, right? We find that this guy gets cast out, everything he has gets taken away and given to the guy with 10. And we read this, and if you're where my heart has been in the past, you read this and you're terrified. Man, I was terrified to the point of apathy. And indifference, just thinking there's nothing I can do. I can never be like the guy that doubled it. I can never be like the other guy with a smaller mouth that also doubled it. I'm the guy who was so afraid that I went and I just buried it. And, and I thought it's just this, this, this preservation of this thing over here that completely misunderstands who God is. If God has worked in your heart to call you into salvation, if you have looked at yourself and said, man, I am sinful, I am set apart from God, but God is gracious, he has redeemed me in the person of Jesus, this man who came and lived a perfectly sinless life, who died on the cross and was raised again on the third day, that if you live in him, your holiness is according to Jesus and not how faithful you are to attend church. And you appeal to this relational approach to God, if this is where you are, then you could never be the one with the one talent. This guy with the one talent did not receive the love and instruction of his master, but he cast it off, showing himself to be evil and lazy. In the midst of your failures, in the midst of you not pursuing Jesus, and, and, and this is the fifth year in a row that you've had a New Year's resolution that says read the Bible every day, and it is what the... Uh, it's the eighth, and you're thinking, I can still catch up. In the midst of that, in the midst of, well, I missed church all Christmas, but I'm here on the eighth. I mean, second Sunday of the year, I am awesome. I'm like 50% for this year. But you're thinking, I just can't maintain it. I can't pursue this. In the midst of all these things, I want you to know something about our great God, that he looks at your heart, he looks at your stumbling, your bumbling, your trip, and your fall and you're laying on the ground, he bids you to stand back up and to attempt again. This God, according to Philippians 2, is willing in you 
and working in you. He is giving you the desire. He is giving you the energy. And in the midst of your failures and your foibles, he is holding you back up. Lamentations 3, and this is where we'll end. I want this to stick in your hearts. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's steadfast love towards you in the person of Jesus never ceases. It is not contingent upon your response. It never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And amen, hallelujah, verse 23. They are new every morning. In response to that, Jeremiah writes, he says, great is your faithfulness. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us, for the gracious way that you call us, come, bid us to, to stand again. Help us not to surrender ourselves to defeat, but help us to live in the victory of Jesus who has overcome sin and death for us. In the midst of our anemic, weak-kneed attempts at pursuit, God, we know that we are trusting and resting on your strength and provision for us. So God, I pray that you would stir in the heart of, of the one who has yet to submit themselves to you. Alert to them the need for salvation. Awaken their heart to the ability to respond to you. God, I pray for the one especially in this room who feels heavy laden, they feel downtrodden, feel like all their best attempts at passionately pursuing you have fallen flat, and they're ready to give up. God, would you redouble their efforts in Philippians 2, to will and to work for your good pleasure. Would you enjoin our hearts together now as we enter into songs of praise towards you. Amen.